Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, campus cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Turner, higher education professional and true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. It's the story of not one, but two victims who tragically lost their lives at the hands of an unlikely suspect, a person who would only be caught because he left behind the same clue at both crime scenes. In 1997, Vincennes University student Brooke Baker was raped and brutally murdered in her off-campus home. Police interviewed hundreds of potential suspects, but were only led to dead ends. That is, until the killer struck again two years later. In 1999, Vincennes University student Erica Norman also was raped and murdered in the same way, and the killer left behind the same type of crime scene. But the second time, he was sloppy and police were led right to him. This episode is titled, Two Victims, One Killer. So without further ado, let's get started. In 1997-year-old Brooke Baker was full of excitement and beyond ready to start her sophomore year of college at Vincennes University in Vincennes, Indiana. Brooke's close friend, Shauna Cooper, said that Brooke was overjoyed to be in college and she wanted to go on to do great things. Shauna explained to Andrea Canning on an episode of Dateline that Brooke would often leap instead of simply jump. That's just the way she approached life. Both Brooke and Shauna grew up in the town of Vincennes, a small city with a population of less than 20,000 people. Vincennes is located in the southwest corner of Indiana, just across the border from Illinois, along the Wabash River. In fact, a bridge spanning across the river literally connects the two states, with Indiana to the east and Illinois to the west. Once in college, Brooke decided to get a place of her own, a small rental house near campus. Brooke was a journalism major, and her little house sat conveniently across the street from the journalism building where she was taking most of her classes. So, needless to say, getting to and from class was a pretty easy task for her. Brooke was also the editor of the student newspaper, The Trailblazer, and she absolutely loved it. 
She also thrived in journalism, and she had aspirations of one day moving to New York City and working for the Rolling Stone magazine. While in college, Brooke forged a close bond with two professors on campus, her journalism advisor, Michael Mullen, and his wife, Rebecca Mullen. Rebecca said Brooke would often sit in her office and talk to her about life and boys and story ideas for the newspaper. Michael said that as both a student and a journalist, Brooke was determined to make a difference in the world through her work. But that was actually something she was already getting a head start at. In September of 1997, Brooke was working on a big investigative piece for the paper. According to Oxygen.com, she was covering an alleged rape involving one of the most prominent fraternities on campus. One of the members had allegedly sexually assaulted a young woman, and Brooke was trying to help the victim tell her story. So as a driven and dedicated student, Brooke was already out there doing the hard-hitting, meaningful reporting. So that brings us to September 7th, 1997, about a month into the fall semester of her sophomore year. On this day, at around 9.30 p.m., Brooke's brother Brian went to Brooke's house to visit his sister. When she didn't answer the door, he used his key and let himself in. As soon as he stepped inside, he heard the sound of running water. It was coming from the bathroom, so Brian assumed Brooke was taking a shower. As he got closer to the bathroom, though, he realized the water was running in the bathtub, but Brooke was not in there, so he turned the water off. Still not sure where his sister was, he began going through the house looking for her. When he got to her bedroom, he saw her lying on her bed. Detective Greg Winkler with the Indiana State Police explained, quote, Brooke's brother, Brian, had found her in her bedroom, walked into the bedroom, saw Brooke laying there, thought she was asleep, and kind of walked away a minute, and came back in and noticed something wasn't right, end quote. Brian suddenly realized that his sister was not sleeping at all. She appeared to be deceased, and her nude, lifeless body was lying on the bed right in front of him. Brian frantically dialed 911 for help. Detective Winkler responded to the scene and discovered what looked like Brooke had been sexually assaulted and brutally murdered with a knife. An autopsy would later reveal that Brooke had been stabbed at least 11 times, once in her breast, and all the other stab wounds were inflicted to her back. Investigators immediately began processing the scene, but they had their work cut out for them because things were just off. For starters, Brooke's house was a bit cluttered, so it was hard for them to tell if anything was out of place. And they quickly noted that there were no signs of forced entry. But something interesting stuck out to them. Remember how Brian had entered the house to find the water in the bathtub running? Well, investigators observed that the bathtub was also filled with wet towels, as if the killer was trying to wash away evidence. If that wasn't strange enough, they found something even odder in the kitchen sink. It was full of soapy water and other random items were floating around in it, including a bottle of Dawn dish soap, several knives, and a pair of scissors. The knives in the sink were of particular interest to police since they knew she had been stabbed, so they sent all of them to the crime lab for testing. They had a pretty good feeling that at least one of the knives they found was the actual murder weapon. And, spoiler alert, it was. Now, obviously, time was of the essence to find her killer. As police began their investigation, news spread quickly across campus about Brooke's tragic death, and the whole campus was on edge that a killer was on the loose. Michael Mullen, the journalism professor, said, quote, The journalism lab was just shock and numbness. I mean, everybody was just kind of going through the motions in the days immediately afterward, end quote. Essentially, 
the person who wrote the stories had now become the story. It was all just so devastating for her friends and family. Shauna said she heard the news in her dorm room. Shauna said, quote, I just kind of fell on the floor, crying, like in shock. It's like one of those really surreal moments. And I grew up here my whole life. I never would have imagined that would have happened, end quote. As investigators looked into solving this tragic case, they began by first canvassing the neighborhood in the immediate vicinity. They wanted to see if the killer may have left behind any trails of evidence or if witnesses could recall hearing or seeing anything peculiar. However, they didn't find anything helpful, and nobody they spoke to remembered anything that stuck out to them. But it didn't take long for leads to start pouring in, so much that investigators asked the chief deputy prosecuting attorney at the time, Hal Johnston, to help them sift through the leads so they could form a timeline of Brooks' last day. Johnston said, quote, Suddenly, everybody wants to volunteer information that they have, or they've heard, or a conversation, or a rumor, or whatever it might be. And the difficulty is, you can't glean, at that point, what's valid and what's invalid. You have to just start taking interviews from people, end quote. So that's exactly what they did. They spoke to as many people as possible who knew Brooke and who had seen and hung out with her the day and night leading up to her death. With this, they began putting together a timeline of her last day in effort to organize the overwhelming amount of information that was coming in. And they soon learned that Brooke was a popular young woman who had a lot of different friends. And on Saturday, September 6th, Brooke's calendar was jam-packed with several social events. Detective Winkler said, quote, Brooke had a busy last day, which is what caused us a lot of problems. Uh, problems. I mean, just a lot of interviews and a lot of people to talk to, end quote. Police learned that at around 3 p.m. that day, Brooke met up with a new friend she had recently met that semester, a young man by the name of Steve Hoffman. According to an episode of Dateline, The Last Day, Brooke and Steve hung out for a few hours before walking to a nearby subway for lunch. After eating dinner together, Brooke and Steve went their separate ways. A little later, around 7 p.m., Brooke hung out with another friend named Biff Elliott, who was on the newspaper staff with her. Police said Biff went to Brooke's house, and then the two walked to a concert at the intramural softball field on campus, which they were covering as reporters for the paper. The concert was over by 9 p.m., and afterward, Biff dropped Brooke off at an off-campus party on 2nd Street, not too far from her rent house. Shauna, Brooke's best friend, explained that Brooke often gravitated toward being friends with guys rather than girls. So Brooke hanging out with these two young men as a friend was not out of the ordinary for her. Plus, Brooke was just a lovable, outgoing person. Shauna said, quote, It would amaze me how she would try to be friends with everybody. She didn't have like a clique or a type. She just had a very contagious personality. You just wanted to be around her, end quote. Once at the party, Brooke met up with a guy named Tommy Williams. Now, Tommy, on the other hand, was a guy that Brooke was interested in as more than just a friend. Apparently, he had already graduated from Vincennes University, and he was just in town visiting for the weekend. At around 10 or 10.30 that night, Brooke and Tommy went to another party being thrown by the soccer players from the university. The two stayed at that party for a couple of hours until about 12.30 a.m., at that point, Brooke and Tommy left there and headed toward Brooke's house. At around 1 a.m., the two of them were spotted walking near the student union by a campus police officer. And according to the information and timeline investigators came up with, this was the last time Brooke was seen alive. 
Now that they knew her whereabouts for the entire evening, police began formally interviewing everyone she had spent time with that day and night. But they started with someone who didn't actually hang out with her. Rather, he just said he saw her. And that was the campus police officer, a guy named Mike Nardine. You see, Nardine was not just a campus police officer. He was also Brooke's landlord, the owner of the rent house she lived in. And he creeped Brooke the heck out, majorly. Apparently, he would shine a flashlight into her windows at night, or he would show up at odd times, and she'd randomly catch him inside her house. He would tell her that, since he was the landlord, he had a right to be there. But Brooke complained to Shauna and her professors about this creepy landlord, and I don't blame her. Both Michael Mullen and his wife Rebecca shared some disturbing information that Brooke had told them. Michael said, quote, She'd come out of the shower, and he was sitting on her couch, and she said, What are you doing here? And he said, I came in to spray for bugs, end quote. Then Rebecca described another situation that Brooke had shared with her. Rebecca Mullen said, quote, She said one time she woke up from a nap that she had taken, and he was sitting at the edge of her bed, end quote. So naturally, her professors were worried about her safety. Apparently, he even had the audacity to suggest exchanging sex for rent. Ugh, what a total loser. Anyway, knowing this bit of information, people came forward and were insistent that he, the landlord, Mike Nardine, must be the prime suspect. So police called him into the station for an interview. Several times, actually. Detective Bob Dunham said Nardine was cooperative and he willingly took a polygraph, but he was extremely unhappy about it. The polygraph results were inconclusive, meaning they couldn't be certain whether he was lying or telling the truth. But thankfully, DNA does not lie, and Nardine also voluntarily provided his DNA to investigators. By this time, a rape kit administered on Brooke's body had come back from the lab, and it did yield some results. Detectives got a huge break in the case when they learned that an unknown male's DNA had been found in Brooke's body. But because they had no way of identifying whose DNA it was, at least not just yet, they labeled the DNA, or the suspect of the DNA, as 137F. So obviously, when they got Nardine's DNA, they compared it to 137F. And y'all, it was not a match. Prosecutor Hal Johnston told Dateline, quote, So basically, other than rumor and hearsay, I don't have a case against him whatsoever, end quote. Still, though, just because Nardine's DNA didn't match 137F, it didn't necessarily mean he was not the perpetrator. I mean, after all, his polygraph was still inconclusive. And to police and investigators, unless people had a rock-solid alibi where they could prove without a doubt that they were somewhere other than Brooke's house that night, they were still a suspect, including Nardine. But detectives continued the investigation as they interviewed the other guys Brooke had spent time with on the night of her murder. The next person they talked to was Steve Hoffman, the new friend of Brooke's whom she had gone to Subway with earlier in the evening. According to an episode of Dateline, they interviewed Steve many times over many hours about his relationship with Brooke, and he fully cooperated the whole time. He informed detectives that he and Brooke had a friends with benefits type of relationship, but he did allude to wanting to be more than friends. He wanted something a little more serious with her. Steve told investigators how he and Brooke went to Subway that evening, and then he told them that they said their goodbyes and went their separate ways after dinner. 
However, he also said that wasn't the only time or the last time he saw Brooke that evening. He explained that he later drove by the party on 2nd Street and he saw her standing on the front porch with another guy. Police, suspicious that jealousy could have been a motive to harm Brooke, asked Steve for his DNA, which he willingly provided. Ultimately, his DNA was not a match to 137F, but similar to Nardine, he wasn't completely eliminated off the suspect list just yet. The next person investigators spoke to was Biff, Brooke's friend and fellow journalist for the school paper. According to police, Biff was the only one they strongly believed was not involved in Brooke's murder from the moment they first spoke with him. He was just an honest, trustworthy dude. Plus, he gave a DNA sample as well, and he too was not a match to 137F. Finally, investigators interviewed Tommy Williams, the guy Brooke had spent the most time with on the night of her murder, and the person she was last seen with alive. That's when they learned that Tommy was a Vincennes University alum, and he was in town visiting friends for the weekend. When investigators spoke with him, he admitted to spending most of the night with Brooke, and he openly told them that the two did have sex at her house after the parties. Then he said he left Brooke's house at approximately 1.30 a.m., The problem with Tommy was that they could not confirm his alibi. Nobody actually saw him again until around 3 a.m., at which point he was spotted walking across campus, and then again at 5 a.m. when his friend verified that Tommy had come to his place to sleep on his couch. So there were several hours where nobody could account for Tommy's whereabouts. But with Tommy, investigators really leaned into their gut instincts, and they believed he was telling the truth. It didn't necessarily cross him off the suspect list entirely. However, the odds of Tommy being the perpetrator were low, especially after they swabbed him for DNA. It came back as not a match to 137F either. After this, police hit somewhat of a dead end because the DNA sample found on Brooke did not match any guy she was with that night or anyone in her circle of friends. Expectedly, the longer the investigation went with no arrest, the more frustrated and angry and sad Brooke's family and friends became. And Brooke's mom, Janet, had a theory of her own. Remember the investigative piece Brooke was working on about the fraternity and purported sexual assault? Well, Janet Baker, her mom, was convinced that someone in the fraternity killed her daughter, especially because some of the frat brothers had reached out to Brooke and threatened her not to write the story. At the time, Janet told the media, quote, she has an email from this fraternity that says, write the story, you will die, end quote. And Brooke had also shown this email to her professor and advisor, Michael Mullen. He explained that the email basically told Brooke to drop the story and leave them alone. They also told her to mind her own business and that she didn't know what she was getting herself into. So police looked into the fraternity theory. According to Oxygen.com, police questioned and took DNA from nearly five dozen fraternity brothers, but not one of them matched 137F. So for the most part, that theory was dismissed. Unfortunately, Brooke's case went cold for nearly two years. That is, until another Vincennes University student, 21-year-old Erica Norman, was reported missing on July 5, 1999. Erica lived in an apartment building off 2nd Street, and at around 4 p.m. on Sunday, July 4th, another tenant in the same building heard something strange coming from Erica's apartment when he walked by. 
it was the sound of loud running water. The tenant didn't think too much about it at first, but the sound was loud enough that it stuck out to him. Then, when he walked by Erica's apartment again the next morning, at around 7.30 a.m. on Monday, July 5th, he heard that same sound. The water was still running, over 12 hours later. This tenant also noticed that Erica's door was unlocked, so he listened to his gut instinct, and he decided to go inside. Sure enough, he found water running in both the bathroom sink and tub, so he shut it off. But Erica, his neighbor who lived in that apartment, was nowhere to be found. And as he looked around, he realized that not only was Erica not home, but there also appeared to be blood on the walls. At that point, he immediately called the building's owner, who then notified police. At around 7.45 a.m., Detectives Dunham and Winkler responded to the call and went to Erica's apartment. At the time, all they knew was that someone, Erica, was missing and that it looked like there had been an altercation inside the apartment. When they got there, though, it was much worse than they imagined, and they got chills as they stepped inside and found a very familiar crime scene. Right away, they could tell that something terrible happened there. There was, in fact, blood on the walls, but they also found a broken lamp, ripped and overturned couch cushions, as well as some missing couch cushions, and the living room was in total disarray. Erica's bedroom was covered in more blood, and her closet had been ransacked, as if a struggle had occurred all around the apartment. In the bathroom, where that water had been running, they found blood on the vanity and sink area, and one of the missing couch cushions was actually inside the tub, where, yes, it was completely soaked in water because, oh, you know, the water had been running on it for all those hours. Other items found in the bathtub include a tote lid and a duffel bag, and once again, it appeared that someone had tried to wash away evidence. Detectives working the scene found themselves having instant deja vu. The crime scene they were looking at reminded them a lot of the crime scene from two years ago at Brooke Baker's rent house. Hal Johnson, the former prosecutor who worked both cases, said there was very strong correlations between them, and investigators had a strong suspicion that they were dealing with the same perpetrator. Detective Dunham said, quote, I knew deep down in my heart that we had the same guy that did the same thing again, end quote. The only major difference between the two cases was that whoever was responsible, you know, if it was the same person, well, they were desperate enough, this time, to move the body. Now, detectives didn't want to jump to conclusions just yet, despite their overwhelming hunch. And while they hoped for the best but prepared for the worst, their number one order of business was to find Erica. At first, detectives weren't sure what they were dealing with, because similar to Brooks' residence, there were no signs of forced entry in Erica's apartment. Also, there was cash out in the open. It looked like it had been partially stuffed in an envelope and left out on a table. And Erica's purse was still there as well. So there were no indications that a robbery had occurred. Erica also had a roommate, but he had gone to Colorado for the weekend, which meant Erica had been home alone. As they began the search for Erica, detectives first called area hospitals to see if she had possibly been admitted, but that led nowhere. So they started talking to her neighbors in and around the apartment building to see if they might have seen or heard anything odd. Several of the neighbors said they did witness something two nights earlier at around four in the morning. They described it as banging noises coming from the direction of Erica's apartment, but most of them wrote it off as normal sounds. 
like they didn't think too much about it. However, a couple who lived across the street from the building said they heard something a little more ominous. They were sitting outside on their front porch when they heard a scream and it was coming from the direction of Erica's apartment building. This was around the same time as those banging noises at about 4 a.m. the same day. So investigators theorized that whatever happened to Erica likely occurred on the couch in her living room, which is why the perp put the cushion in the bathtub and turned on the water. But if he moved her body, investigators weren't sure how far he could have actually gone. So they immediately searched the streets and alleys in the area. But again, they found nothing. As they continued and expanded their search, police had to make the unthinkable call to Erica's parents, who lived over 100 miles away. Police had to tell them that their child they sent off to college for a bright and promising future was now missing. Erica's younger sister, Rhonda, remembers her parents receiving the call and how they all jumped in the car and rushed to Vincennes, Indiana. Rhonda said, quote, It's a three-hour drive, and you know she's missing. You can't help but scan the whole roadways. It seemed like an impossible feat that she's missing, and now we have to find her? It was all just so confusing to Erica's family. You see, investigators didn't immediately share their suspicions about the possible connection to Brooke Baker's murder. Not just yet, anyway. They basically told them the minimum, that Erica was missing and they were trying to locate her. That's because they couldn't be sure of their theory, and they needed to do more investigating before they could come to a definitive conclusion, such as finding Erica. More particularly, they needed to focus on tracking down people who knew her and those who could help trace her last steps over the 4th of July weekend. As they began recounting her last few days, investigators discovered that nobody had really seen or heard from Erica since Saturday night on July 3rd, 1999. That evening, Erica left her apartment at around 5.30 p.m. She made the 10-minute drive to a local pub where she worked as a server, a job that her family said she absolutely loved, and she loved the people she worked with, too. That night, Erica worked her shift until about 10 p.m. when she clocked out. Afterward, she and some of her co-workers and friends went to a local bar where they later met up with another group of friends. By about 3 a.m., now on Sunday, July 4th, The bar was closing, but Erica wasn't ready to call it a night, so she invited whoever wanted to keep the party going over to her apartment to watch a movie. However, only one person took her up on the offer, a guy named Brian Jones. A little later, Erica and Jones were last seen driving away from the bar in Jones's car. Now, police looked into Brian Jones, and they realized they had no information about him because he had no record. So essentially, they knew nothing about who this Brian Jones guy was. All they knew was that they needed to track him down as quickly as possible because he was the last person seen with Erica. Investigators discovered that Jones and Erica knew each other because they had once worked at the same restaurant when Erica first moved to Vincennes a couple years prior. But when Erica got the new job at the pub, they no longer worked together, but they remained acquaintances and hung out in the same circle of friends. It didn't take police long to track down Jones. On July 5th, 1999, they went to a local factory where he worked and they asked him to go to the station with them for an interview. He agreed and fully cooperated. Detectives began questioning him slowly and learned a little bit about his background first. Jones told them that he was from Indiana and that he used to attend Vincennes University. 
He said even though he doesn't go to school anymore, he still socializes with a lot of students. Now, side note, I'm not sure if he was just no longer a student, like he dropped out or didn't finish, or if he was no longer a student because he graduated, so if he was an alum. So I'm, I'm not really sure. No, none of the research makes that clear. But anyway, Jones also admitted to knowing Erica, and he even said he saw her that night. Detective Winkler explained, quote, he was nervous, but he was still calm enough and able to speak and gave us a story, end quote. Jones proceeded to tell police that he did go back to Erica's apartment after the bar. He said they put on a movie, but Erica fell asleep on the couch before it ended. When he realized she was asleep, he said he woke her up and told her he was going to go ahead and leave. He was adamant that he covered her up with a blanket, and when he left, he said she was completely fine. But during his interview, he said something bizarre that really got the detective's attention. He randomly told them that one of his old roommates had dated Brooke Baker. Um, what? Where did that come from? Needless to say, Jones had just put himself even further under the microscope after offering up this tidbit of critical information. And it confirmed to investigators that they were headed in the right direction, at the very least, and most likely, the connection to Brooke's murder had just been validated. Here's the thing. Investigators were familiar with Jones's old roommate. They already knew him because he had provided a DNA sample two years prior when they were investigating Brooke's murder. And the roommate's DNA did not match the sample they had from the crime scene. You know, the sample they called 137F. They also knew that meant that Brooke had visited Jones's home several times and had previously met Jones while she was there. So they straight up asked Jones if he had ever had sexual relations with Brooke. He flatly told them no, but police knew they were still going to collect his DNA, which he willingly gave them. Jones provided them with both a blood and hair sample, and he even handed over his clothes and shoes that he had worn that Saturday when he was with Erica. So, as you can see, he was very cooperative which only helped investigators get closer to the truth. After collecting his clothes and shoes, detectives noticed a small red stain on one of the shoes he provided. It appeared to be blood, but they needed DNA from Erica to see if it matched the blood they had found in both her apartment and what appeared to be on the shoe. Since Erica was missing, they collected DNA from her parents for comparison. A week later, the results showed that it was, in fact, Erica's blood. But they also got some results from Jones's DNA. Y'all, finally, they found a match to 137F from Brooke's case. And Jones was that match. Detectives were beside themselves. After two years, they finally found a match. The DNA match that they had been waiting on for so long. Detective Dunham said, quote, I hate to be this way because, as an investigator, you're always taught to stay in the middle and not lean here and not lean there. But I was so, so excited at that point in time because we had been, like I said, almost two years looking for 137F, end quote. After this, police put Jones under strict surveillance until they could issue a warrant for his arrest. Two days later, on July 13th, 1999, 22-year-old Brian Jones was officially arrested for Brooke's murder. Shortly after, police held a community-wide press conference to announce the news that he had officially been arrested for the rape and murder of Brooke Baker. And now, he also was officially a suspect in Erica Norman's missing persons case. 
The DNA results also meant that investigators caught Jones in a blatant lie. He said he had not had sex with Brooke, but DNA proved otherwise. This meant the case against Brian Jones was strong. Prosecutor Hal Johnston said, quote, everything is really starting to just fall into place. That he was a student, that he had been over there, that the connection with friends and with Erica, it was all the pieces, end quote. But they still needed to find Erica. Although they had an overwhelming hunch that she was no longer alive, they needed the physical evidence of her body before they could move forward with charges. And they didn't have to wait long. On July 20th, 1999, 15 days after she was officially reported missing, Erica's body was found in a remote cornfield. It was just across the Wabash River in Illinois, only a 10-minute drive from Erica's apartment, and it was badly decomposed. Though she was basically unrecognizable, her student ID and driver's license were found nearby, and dental records confirmed the body was, in fact, Erica. After this, search warrants for Jones's home and car revealed more evidence that connected him to Erica's murder. Investigators found Erica's blood in Jones's shower, which led them to believe he showered after assaulting and murdering her, and they found more of her blood in his trunk, which is how he transported her body. Needless to say, after finding this additional evidence, Jones was officially charged with Erica's murder too. Naturally, Erica's family was devastated when police broke the news to them. Elaine Conrad, Erica's mother, had just spoken to her daughter a few days before her death. In that phone call, Erica was happy, and she told her mother that she had plans for the holiday weekend. Elaine described her daughter as a very happy and cheerful person in general, who embraced the playful side of life. Elaine chuckled and grinned as she said, quote, She was always teasing me, and she would make fun of me sometimes, but she just liked to have fun, end quote. Erica was a sophomore at Vincennes University. In her spare time, she enjoyed DJing for the campus radio station, WROK, The Rock. And like Brooke, Erica too had big dreams and goals ahead of her, and she left behind great friends who miss her dearly. Her best friend from high school, Ileana Garan, described Erica as a very trusting and kind person, almost to a fault. Ileana told Andrea Canning on Dateline, quote, she just thought everybody was good people. Everybody was good to her. She didn't see anything bad in anybody, end quote. And remember those plans for July 4th that Erica had mentioned to her mother? Ileana said those plans were actually with her, but inevitably, Erica never showed. Ileana, reflecting on their close friendship, explained how after graduating high school, the two besties went to separate colleges, but Erica had planned to major in Spanish and perfect her language. Then after finishing college, the two friends were going to take a long trip to Honduras together. Ileana said she misses her friend every single day. Moving on with the timeline of events, Brian Jones pleaded guilty to the murder of Erica Norman. There was a lot of evidence against him, so I'm sure his legal counsel advised him that he would not win if he went to trial. But in exchange for his guilty plea, as part of the plea agreement, the prosecution agreed to not seek the death penalty in Brooke Baker's case, a charge to which Jones pleaded not guilty and elected to go to trial. So a year later, Jones got his day in court. And y'all, it did not go well for him. Prosecutor Hal Johnston gave a strong and direct opening statement to the jury. Johnston recalled, quote, The very first words out of my mouth were, He raped her, he murdered her, and he lied about it. 
end quote. Johnston also talked about the DNA match that they had waited so long for, 137F. They also found the same DNA under her fingernails where she fought until her last breath. Johnston said, quote, she fought for her life. The last moments on this earth were horrific for her, but she put up a hell of a fight, end quote. Additionally, one of the knives found in the kitchen sink came back as the murder weapon, which contained Brooke's DNA as well, a fact that Johnston also told the jury. The defense, on the other hand, tried to poke holes in the prosecution's case. Jones's attorney, Scott Danks, pointed out that the prosecution had very little evidence against Jones, you know, besides the DNA. Danks suggested that all the DNA did was prove the two had sex, and he claimed that there were several other young men who had much more motive and opportunity to harm and kill Brooke than his client did. The defense also tried to explain away Jones's blatant lie about having sex with Brooke by saying he just simply didn't want to cast suspicion on him when detectives questioned him about it. Essentially, the defense's tactic was to paint Brooke in a bad light and attack her character in effort to generate reasonable doubt. But their tactics didn't work. After deliberating for about five hours, the jury came back with a guilty verdict. Jones had been found guilty on both charges of rape and murder. Now, it's important to point out here that during the trial, the jury was not allowed to hear that Jones had pleaded guilty to the rape and murder of Erica Norman. But they were allowed to hear it during the sentencing phase, and they threw the book at him. He was given the maximum sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. After the trial, Brooks' father, Maurice Baker, addressed the media. He said, quote, We're satisfied. We know we have the right person, and maybe he won't be able to harm anyone anymore. End quote. Investigators who worked both cases, particularly Detectives Winkler and Dunham and prosecuting attorney Hal Johnston, well, they credit the one clue that Jones left behind at each murder scene as the thing that ultimately helped solve the two cases. He left the water running in both crimes. According to Oxygen.com, Johnston explained, quote, In all the murder cases I've worked, I've never seen anybody do anything like that before. Humans are creatures of habit. Killers are creatures of habit. They'll kill the same way. They'll clean up the same way. Why? Because it worked before. End quote. After Jones's trial, and after both cases were officially closed, Erica's family was left to grapple with a double-edged sword. The fact that Erica's death helped solve Brooke's murder. Elaine, Erica's mother, said, quote, That's what's haunted me ever since. Erica had to die for him to be caught. End quote but they absolutely believe he would have done it again. So they rest assured knowing that he was caught and that he won't be able to hurt another innocent person or their family ever again. According to a 2021 article by Dana Winkleplek for mywabashvalley.com, Brian Jones remains locked up in the Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, exactly where he belongs. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 67. Be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can find me at Campus Crime Chronicles on both Facebook and Instagram. That's also where you can find a direct link to my Patreon. <laughs> I am so excited that I officially launched it. If you sign up for my exclusive content, you will get one bonus episode each month. This month in January, the bonus episode exclusive to my patrons and subscribers is about a group of students who were caught running a money fraud ring 
in their dorm room. So be sure to sign up for my Patreon or Apple Premium to listen to that episode because you won't find it on my regular feed only if you sign up. So go do that right now. (laughs) Okay, well, that's all for today. So bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by G.R.E. Gassaway. Tune in again in one week for the next Chronicle.